Are you thankful there's another in the fire this morning? And it's so good to know that no matter what we go through, as followers of Christ, we never go through it alone. Uh, I'm so thankful that he has overcome sin and death, the grave. Uh, we are in Christ, and therefore we are guaranteed an eternal hope that goes beyond our understanding. And with that comes a peace that when we go through trials and tribulations of all different kinds, some by our own hand, and I know uh, it's tough to say amen to that one, some of us have done things and made decisions that led to trials that were of our own doing. And some of other decisions that others made that affected us. And some just because we live in a fallen world. And some trials because God allows those things to refine us and purify our faith. In whatever way we go through a trial, he goes through it with us. And we can run to him. We don't need to flee the trial. We don't need to flee our calling. We run to him. And he strengthens us. This morning, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I pray, I genuinely pray the last two weeks uh, that you have been encouraged and strengthened through what we've gone through the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark so far. And I know you might be thinking, well, preacher, we only were in the first chapter. Uh, I pray that even in what little bit we look at, looked at in chapter 1, greatly encouraged you, strengthened you, and excited you for what God has for you. And so uh, a little bit of homework, I guess I could say, was given to you to read uh, chapters 2 through 5. Uh, some of you might have just went ahead and read the whole gospel. That's awesome. Uh, but prayerfully, you may have a chance to read those chapters. Uh, we're actually going to be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. And so Mark chapter 6, we're just going to take kind of a, a snippet from Mark 6, unpack that this morning, and then prayerfully see how the Lord would encourage us in his word. So Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you, there are some Bibles there. If you do not have a copy of God's word, uh, you would be turning to page 702. So page 702, if you're using one of the Bibles provided uh, Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, we would love to give you that. Uh, you can go to the Welcome Center before you leave today and just tell them, hey, I, can I have a Bible? And they'll give you one. Uh, no questions asked. That's yours to take home with you. Or if you would like, you can download our app, uh, North Goodland BC, in your app store. And on that app, there is a copy of God's Word as well. And so however it helps you to be in God's Word, we encourage you to take time to be in God's Word and have a copy for Yourself. Mark chapter 6 and verses 1 through 6. We're going to read one of the, in my opinion, craziest moments. And I know this is a big statement to make based on the life of Christ on earth. But to me, it's one of the craziest moments in the gospel account of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible says that he went out from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples follow him. That's a key there. I know we read that and we go, okay, they were following along. That's the call of a disciple, is to follow Christ. A call of a disciple is not to make people like us, not to make God like us, to make God's calling in our lives what we want it to be, our comfort, our convenience. We're followers of Christ. And so I know that's a simple little phrase, and his disciples followed him. But man, I pray that we as followers of Christ are truly that, that we're following Christ. So are we going to do it perfect all the time? No. That's why there's grace. That's why there's repentance. But as a follower of Christ, my desire, my heart's cry should be, Lord, every day I want to follow you no matter where you may lead. We said it the first week. We're following Christ through this gospel. 
We're following him because we want to arrive at a destination. And that destination is to be fully devoted followers of Christ. On every day, we're desiring to grow in that area. Verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, of Joseph, of Judah, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. He could, uh, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick, sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. I, I read it. Just there's so much here that just always kind of I find just crazy. It's just surreal, the things we read in this passage. And so I'm going to pray. I know Jeff prayed for our service, but I'm going to pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would be attentive to it. We would give it all due diligence and with all of our effort, we would desire to know the word this morning. But I know in our human abilities, our understanding is feeble and weak. I cannot, on my own, in my own strength, and my own wisdom, understand what you'd have for me this morning. But I believe, based on the word of God, that those who are in Christ, we have the spirit of God. That in your word, in Romans chapter 8, it says that we are, if we are of Christ, if we are his, then we have his spirit. And that spirit that you've given to us at the moment of salvation is given to minister to us. Yes, great comfort and peace as we find in John 14, verse 27. But Lord, more than that also, we're given this spirit that we might understand the word of God. That we might understand it and apply it to our lives by grace. And I pray that that's what would take place this morning. That we would read in this passage these truths of these things that happen. And we would see how we can understand them and apply them to our lives. Lord, whether we be changed by it, whether we see a way to worship you anew in this passage, Lord, I pray that your glory would go forth. This is all for you, Lord. It's not about me. It's not about the band. It's not about anything that we would put up here. It's about you. And I pray that the church before me today, the, the gathering of the believers would would be united in desiring to be moved of you, not just to understand, but to apply. And so, Father, thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So every time I read this passage, um, there's a question that comes to my mind. And maybe you've thought this when I read this. What could have been, you don't need to answer out loud, but just think about this, what could have been for the people of Nazareth? The question always comes to my mind when I read this passage. What could have been for the people of Nazareth in this passage? Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, when you look at what happens here, we're going to get to it, but they have unbelief. And seemingly, we're going to unpack why and how. I believe Scripture teaches us that this unbelief led Jesus to limit what he desired to do or, or what he did in their presence. 
And we're going to unpack all that in just a few moments. But I wonder, because of their unbelief, and because Jesus' decision to limit what he did in their midst, what could have been for Nazareth had they believed? What could have been for these people had they just chose to believe that Jesus truly was the Son of God? And I want to review quickly. What did we say the whole kind of theme of Mark is before us? It starts in verse 1 of chapter 1. It's a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the Savior. Some have said Mark considers him the suffering servant or the suffering Savior. We see the mankind or the, 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 the human nature of Jesus' uh, nature on display in the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't deny the divinity, but he definitely talks about his human nature, that he was a man. Now, he was without sin, but he was a human. He was a man. He was flesh. And so Mark presents this before us. And so as we're going through here, the rest of Mark unpacks the reality that Jesus is really who he says he was. Jesus really is the Messiah. And so here in this passage, we come across this group of people in his hometown that chose to not believe that. That chose to only see with their human eyes. But I have to stop and pause and say, before we judge this group too harshly, when I ask that question, what could have been for the people of Nazareth as though somehow I'm so much better than them, God is so gracious to remind me that before we judge them too harshly, we have to ask ourselves a follow-up question that, again, you don't need to answer out loud, but I want you to think about this. A question that might help, ourselves put, uh, help, might help us put ourselves in their shoes. Here's the question, just something to think about. If Jesus was to offer to come to Emily City in the flesh to spend time with us, teaching us and leading us, maybe even performing miracles before us that would draw us to worship and honor God. Don't have to answer out loud, but just think on this. Would you want him to come? Again, don't answer out loud, but just think about that. If Jesus miraculously manifested in the flesh and desired to come to a church and he called North Goodland, That'd be a crazy phone call, by the way. I don't think Kelsey would be like, I'm sorry, who is this? Uh Uh-huh, sure. Probably hang up on Jesus, which wouldn't be a good idea, okay? Yeah, right, buddy, click. That's gone. But if Jesus said, hey, I want to come to a local church, and I've chosen North Goodland. I want to come, and I I want to teach and lead and show you some things. And I came to the church and said, hey, guys, Jesus wants to come here. How many of us, don't answer out loud, but again, think about this, because I think we have a, a knee-jerk church answer, and then there's like that, that wrestling answer that we all battle with. How many of us would want to come? I think if we really, if I asked you to raise your hand and poll the audience, I think everyone would say, yes, of course, I want Jesus to come. I would love for Jesus to come in the flesh, as we see in the Gospels, to come and teach us and lead us and, and be before us. But I wonder... Although that's the answer I think we would want to give, and I think it's the answer we would want to be the true answer. For me, if I'm just being honest, there's parts of me that would really be like, I don't know. And you're just thinking, you're a pastor, and you just admitted you don't want Jesus to come teach our church. Hear what I'm saying. I'm just being, I'm just being honest. I would love that, but there's parts of me that would be like, I don't know. I mean, is it really true that most Christians would even want that to happen? Is it true that most churchgoers would want that to happen? 
based on the direct and genuine nature of Jesus' teaching in Scripture, would we really want him to come and truly lay before us all of God's word? I mean, he told it like it was. Now, we always say he did it in love. And what does Paul say? Speak truth in love. Right? I've heard it said this way. Truth without love is like a firearm fully loaded and unloading on a victim. It's just like just blasting somebody with truth. It's all truth, but you leave them wounded and bleeding in the street. Jesus spoke truth in love. He spoke harsh truths that cut us open. What does the Bible do, by the way, when we give ourselves to it and we're reading it? It opens us up. It cuts to the very marrow of our our bone, right? It cuts down deep. But then what happens? The truth reveals, and then the grace of God, that love, is like a healing ointment that heals us, that restores us. But what did the crowd think of Jesus when he taught in the Gospels? I mean, how did people respond to the words of Christ when he actually said what he said? Again, it was truth in love, but it always didn't, or didn't always seem or sound loving at the time. Some would still say, yes, I do want Jesus to come, but I do think there are others that might pass due to the fear of conviction, fear of being called to surrender and step out, fear to be called out from just playing church, or from fear of being made uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of people that sit in churches across our country today that would say, yeah, I would love Jesus to come, but then there's a part of them that would say, I don't really know if I want him to come. And so before we judge this crowd in Nazareth too harshly, let's step back and ask, do we really want to hear from Christ? Do we really want to know him and his word for us? Francis Chan said something a long time ago that kind of stuck with me, and I'm just going to give a loose kind of paraphrase of what he said. He basically said this to his church. He said, if Jesus had a church in our town, I think our church would be bigger. He said, if if Jesus had a church in our town, I think our church would be bigger than Jesus' church. Meaning, as we see in Scripture, people followed him, but for some, that following only lasted as long as the handouts and performances lasted. People followed Jesus, sure, thousands followed Jesus. But usually they started to turn away when what? They were called to step up, step out, and actually follow him. They loved the handouts. They loved the freebies. They loved the performances. Oh, do another trick for us, Jesus. Do another magic act for us, Jesus. We really love that. And he says, there's no sign I'm going to give you but this. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. There's your sign. Even Jesus got to a point where he said, I'm not going to just perform for you to entertain you. There's something to this. There's a reason for this. Once he called them to pick up their cross, which led to death, the crowds faded away. So I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that none of us would want Jesus to come or that none of us are following him and all those things. I know that we are. But I'm saying when we read this text, I think we instantly go to like attack mode. Oh, I can't believe those people. I can't believe they reject Jesus. I can't believe they wouldn't see it. I mean, we don't see it at times in our lives. There's others around us that don't see it. And so before we go into attack mode, let's step back and say, okay, how can I encourage someone to see Christ for who he really is? How can I encourage them with truth and love? And am I, myself, am I desiring to be that follower that God has called me to be? So let's dive into this text 
and see what God would have for us. I can already tell you we're probably not going to get through the whole talk this morning, but that's okay. We'll be fine. But I want to dive into this and start breaking this apart. So the first thing we have to notice is that Jesus went home. Jesus went home. This is his hometown. He went back to his hometown. In chapter 6 and verse 1, it talks about that, that he went to his own country. And then look at verse 2. What happened when he got home? What was the response when he showed up in his hometown? Verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished. Note that word. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That word astonished is key. Saying from, uh, saying from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? So what are the two things that left them astonished? This is in awe. This is not just like, wow, that's interesting. This is like, I'm blown away by what I'm seeing right now. We talked about this in the first two weeks. Two things leave them astonished. His teaching, or the Bible says his wisdom, his words, or his miracles. His teaching and his works. So his words and his works leave them astonished. This is what we saw early in Mark chapter 1, is it not? It was the teaching of Christ and the works of Christ that left the crowd in awe. They were astonished. They were blown away. Everywhere Jesus goes, his teaching and works provoke astonishment. Here, this astonishment has a slight twist to it. It's a slightly different use of this idea. In that Jesus' hometown would be shocked to even see Jesus enter the synagogue and teach. So they're not just amazed at what he's teaching and what he's doing. They're amazed that he even walked into the synagogue and began to teach. Because they don't see him qualified to teach. Who is this man that he thinks he can just walk in and start teaching these things? They were shocked he even did that. Then once he starts talking and starts teaching... Now they're even more shocked. Well, how does he even have this wisdom, humanly speaking? R.C. Sproul says it this way, and I love this. They knew he didn't go to seminary, and this is kind of modernizing it a little bit for us. But that's okay, I didn't go to seminary either, but that's all right. They knew he did not go to seminary, didn't train under under a great teacher. They saw him as unqualified to teach. So what made them question his ability to teach? They don't even see him as qualified. We know you didn't train under some great teacher. I mean, his credentials, humanly speaking, and compared to Paul's credentials before he came to Christ, Paul would be considered more qualified to do this than Jesus, humanly speaking. Now, I should clarify something. I said I didn't go to seminary. I never attended grad school. I do have an undergraduate degree in Bible, okay? But some of you are like, why am I listening to you right now? Like you just admitted you didn't go to seminary, okay? When you think about this, humanly speaking, they're wanting to check the box, right? Like, do you check all the boxes? Do you have all the appropriate credentials? Isn't it amazing the same thing was said of his disciples in the book of Acts? And we talked about this last week. Who are these men? They're uneducated. They're ignorant, unlearned men. But we know they've been at the feet of Jesus. See, the same accusation that the disciples get thrown at them in Acts as they're turning the world upside down, the city upside down, Jesus gets the same accusation here. Who does this guy think he is? 
And we talked about it before. What did chapter 1 reveal to us? That he has authority to teach, not because of a human understanding, not because of some schooling giving him a piece of paper that says, okay, now you're good to go. He has inherent authority as God himself, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, the one that's come to save the world. That's where he has his authority. What makes him so qualified? He qualifies himself as God. And therefore, his words are authoritative to us. So what did they struggle with in understanding his ability to teach? Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So they noted some things about Christ. They noted his humanity. They were hung up on his humanity. They could not see past it. The things that they noted about his humanity was his normal family. They list his mother, his brothers, and sisters. Now again, what what do we notice in verse 3? There's somebody that's missing, that's kind of omitted in the text. Who's missing in this verse? Joseph, right? Mary's there, brothers and sisters there, no mention of Joseph. Now, there's a couple opinions on why this could be, why he's being omitted here. Uh, The first implies that Joseph has already passed away by this time, that he has died, he has passed away, therefore they would not reference Joseph because he was no longer with them living. Some have assumed that. That would be why later at the cross we don't see Joseph and so on and so forth. Some have suggested that this is the same hometown that would have known the past of Mary and her pregnancy with Jesus. And remember, many thought Mary was making it up. I mean, even Joseph struggled with this until the angel came and said, no, it's okay, take her as your wife. What she said is true. See, some believe that Mary was unfaithful before marrying Joseph and that this wasn't Joseph's child, this was an illegitimate child. And so maybe some have suggested, and we don't know for sure, it's just an assumption, either because Joseph has passed away or because they were pointing out the nature of Jesus' birth. Well, he's the son of Mary. We all know Mary. Remember, she was the one that fooled around, got pregnant, tried to say it was of God. And we all know Mary and her reputation. Who does this Jesus think he is? He's an illegitimate child. And the reason I wonder if that could be a possibility, I think both are fair assumptions, but the reason I wonder if the second one could be a fair assumption also as well as a possibility is because it kind of fits with the tone of the text. They were already kind of critical of Jesus. They're already kind of a little bit negative in their connotation. So either way, whether it's because Joseph has passed away or because of Mary's reputation, we see here that there was this, again, this tone. They noted he's just from a normal family. They have his brothers. Uh, it's, it's four brothers and at least two sisters. We say at least two because it's pluralized, sisters, so it's more than one. And we don't know how many, but we know it's more than two, or two or more, I should say. Now, this does contradict some teaching, um, and I'm not sure how prevalent this is now, but in the Catholic Church, there was a thought and a teaching of the fact that Mary, uh, after giving birth to Christ, continued to be a virgin until her death that she never had any other children. But this text right here seems to contradict that and suggest that no, in fact, 
there were brothers and sisters. Some have argued, well, they weren't Mary's children. They were maybe Joseph's children or whatever, and not even brothers and sisters. Maybe they were just cousins, and the text is... You've got to do a lot of gymnastics to make the text say what it doesn't say. So here we see they noted his normal family. Also, they note a normal childhood. In this verse, there's this understanding of just a normal childhood. Uh, They were shocked because Jesus had not demonstrated anything supernatural, apparently, during his childhood that would suggest divinity. However, again, I do believe if they were paying attention, they should have noticed something was unique of Christ. Now, he didn't perform, as far as we know, Scripture does not say that he performed any miracles during his childhood. And I'm okay with that. Some people might get driven crazy with that. Well, what happened between his birth, two years old, we read about that. Then we don't see him again until the temple at 12. Then we don't read again until 30. What happened in those times? I don't know. Lots of people have written lots of things about what they think happened. I look at it this way. God's word doesn't tell us, so I must not need to know that bad. Just know Christ and you'll find out when you get there, okay? But the suggestion is here from the text, the very people of his hometown seem to suggest there was nothing divine about Jesus' upbringing. He wasn't raising people from the dead or healing people of these diseases in his hometown. So when he showed up and he went to teach in the synagogue, they were like, oh, you're not even qualified to teach. Who are you? And then when they hear his words and see his works, they're equally shocked. Now, again, you might think, well, well, maybe they just didn't know him. Maybe it was a big city Right? I mean, we don't know everyone that lives in our towns, even small towns. Maybe you grew up in a really small town, you know, like Melvin or something like that. And there literally is like 30 people in your town and you literally know everybody. Okay? But in this case, we might think, well, maybe Nazareth is such a big city. Most have determined that the city of Nazareth was roughly 60 acres in total land mass. So the city of Nazareth was roughly 60 acres. Some of you driving into church today saw farm fields bigger than that. 60 acres. We're not talking a huge metropolis. The approximate population of Nazareth at this time would be about 500 people. So we're talking a small town, a very small town that would have known Mary, known Jesus, known the family. I mean, they list the brothers and sisters. So they noted his humanity. They noted his normal family, his normal childhood, but also noted his normal career, his normal career. In verse 3, it says, is not this the carpenter? Now, other texts say he's the carpenter's son. And so that would be referencing Joseph. Matthew, in fact, says that Jesus was the carpenter's son. Mark is the only one to record that Jesus is identified as a carpenter himself. So we can now say, okay, Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus, according to Mark, was a carpenter. Now, when we think of this term, carpenter, what do we think of? What do you think of when you think carpenter? You can answer. Wood, right? Build furniture, housing, right? Building some kind of home. And it could be that, but the term, the word for carpenter here in the original language actually means or translates to a stonemason or a builder in general. A stonemason or a builder in general. From this word, we get the word architect or chief builder. So the idea here is that Jesus 
may have not worked with wood, but may have worked more with stones, like in a quarry, or functioning stones, or shaping stones for building. Either way, I think of that, and I think how much that changes my image of Christ. And we imagine this very weak Jesus, sometimes, humanly speaking. Anytime you see him in movies, how is Jesus portrayed? He looks more like me than Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Let's be real for a minute here, okay? I've accepted it. I'm almost 40 years old. I get it, okay? But we, don't, we picture Jesus as kind of this weak and frail man. Man, when I hear stonemason, I mean that he's picking up and moving and working with these massive stones, it changes our perspective a little bit. Now, we don't know for sure to what degree he worked with stones or wood, but either way, it was a normal career. See, they use it in a negative sense again. Again, what do we think of the disciples? What was most of their profession? Fishermen, just fishermen. And again, I've said this before. People say, well, you know, there's great reasons why he would have chose fishermen. No, there's not. It was a normal, average, ordinary, even below average career. It wasn't one, and Carpenter was not one of great success and nobility. So they're noting a very normal career. And as a result of all of this, noting his humanity, his normal family, his normal childhood, his normal career, his inability and unqualified nature to teach, they came to a conclusion. And we see this at the end of verse 3. It says, and they were offended at him. This literally translates to they stumbled over him. They fell over him. This is the same use of the word found in Romans when Paul speaks of placing a stumbling block in front of someone. The connotation that Paul uses is in the sense of leading someone to sin. Here, the people had a choice to make as they could not avoid Jesus. They had a choice to make. Would they submit to him as the chief cornerstone and rock of our salvation? Or would they reject him as a stone would be rejected if it did not pass the test of flawlessness? You see, oftentimes this word offended can also be used as the word scandalized. This idea of scandalized would be if they found a stone that was desired to be used as a cornerstone of a structure and they found flaws in it that made it imperfect, they would cast it away. It was scandalized. They would just push it away. It wasn't flawless. In the same way, they are looking at Jesus and they are saying, you are scandalized. You are flawed. You have nothing that qualifies you. Normal career, normal childhood, no signs of divinity, nothing. And in fact, when he displayed the words and the works of God, they were shocked because they could not see past his humanity and they rejected him as the chief cornerstone. They said, no, we don't want you. We're going to push you aside. You don't match up with what we expected. Notice that Jesus says, this is the opposite of what this crowd did in Matthew eleven six. Eleven six of Matthew says, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. See, Jesus says in Matthew eleven six, those who are blessed are those who are not offended at Christ, but those who are offended at Christ, they will not receive the blessing. They were stumbling over him because they could not figure out that this carpenter could speak with such wisdom and perform such works. One author says it well. They could not explain him, so they rejected him. Church, tell me that's not what we're seeing in our world today. 
We could not explain him, so they rejected him. But church, let's be real for a minute. Sometimes in our own lives, we could not explain him, so we rejected him. We could not explain what he was wanting to do, so we rejected his will. They could not explain him, so they rejected him. This lack of faith led Jesus to make a bold statement that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. We see this in chapter 6, verse 4 of Mark's gospel. Now, this is an old adage. It's not technically in scripture. It's an adage that was popular among the Jewish rabbis. And the idea is that those that know you best question the call of God on your life. Those that know you best question the call of God on our lives. These people were familiar with Jesus, maybe even up to a point respected Jesus before watching him grow in their midst. But they did not recognize him as Messiah. And they did not place their faith in Jesus. You see, they knew Jesus. They were familiar with Jesus. They knew of Jesus. They knew his family. They watched him grow, some of them. And yet they didn't receive Jesus as Messiah. Why? Why would they reject him? Because in their human understanding, he didn't fit what they were expecting. The reality is, though, that's not Jesus' fault. Jesus displayed before them truth in his words, power in his miracles. If they were watching, they would have received Jesus makes a bold statement in scripture over and over again. To him who has ears, let him hear. See, that's, a, that's a, a, an awakening type comment from Christ. And what it's saying is, if you really want to know, and if you really want to hear, I've made it clear to you. I've declared it in my word. I've displayed it publicly. If you really want to know, you can know. But the problem is many of us, if we're being honest, in our flesh... We don't want to know. What does the Bible say? We reject the light because we love the darkness. So of our own choosing, we reject Christ. We don't want to acknowledge it as God. We don't want to acknowledge the words that's coming from God. We're going to reject him altogether. Because if I receive Jesus as Messiah, I receive Jesus as an authority. And if I receive Jesus as an authority, now my life is not my own, it's his. And he leads, guides, and directs. You see, Jesus responds to his hometown quickly. I think we can move through the rest of this quickly. So let's buckle up and hold on and let's see how we do. There's no seat belts. If you're looking for that, I apologize. Deception there. I don't know that anyone was looking for a seat belt. If you were, that's awesome. Thank you for trying to literally buckle up. Okay. Jesus responds to his hometown. What does Jesus do in response to this hometown visit? Verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. And he could there do no mighty work. Now, we might just read that and go, well, okay, but let's really dive into that. The truth is he limited his works among them. Mark tells us that due to their lack of faith, he could do no miracles there is another way a translation has placed it. This does not mean that Jesus did not have the power to perform a miracle. It is saying that he chose not to do a miracle. In the climate of such unbelief, Jesus withheld the fullness of his power because of their lack of faith. Jesus always knew and knows 
the perfect words to speak and when to speak them, as well as the perfect work to perform and when to perform it. And in his sovereignty, he chose, because of their lack of faith, to withhold what he was going to do there, or maybe what he could have done there is another way to say it. But this is not Jesus losing the power to perform a miracle because of their lack of faith. No, no, no. Jesus made a choice to say, because of your lack of faith, I'm not going to show you what is possible, the fullness of what I could do. However, we have to note also in verse 5, it goes on to say, except he laid hands on a few sick and healed them. Again, I told you at the beginning, this is one of the craziest passages. Only our God can heal a few sick and consider that only a sample size of what he wanted to do or what he was going to do. Think about that. I could do no work there except I healed a few. Only our God heals the sick in a few and says, oh, but what was possible if you just believe? The fullness if you just believe. Read the Gospels. How many times does Jesus say, if you believe, if you believe. Now, again, I want to be very careful here because there's some teaching going around in the church. It's called word of faith. And it's the idea that I can just say it and God will do it if I have enough faith. If I say I want to be a millionaire with just enough faith, can I get an amen? Because I know some of y'all prayed this. Don't act like you haven't. You've been saying that for years in your prayer closet. I mean, you've been on your knees like, Lord, please, come on. The rent is due. Come on. We've got to be careful here. There's a balance here. We can't take it to the extreme. God is sovereign. And God is going to do what God is going to do. But when we respond in faith and we ask him to do these things according to his will, again, not in the lust of our own flesh, not because it's our desires, but his desires are growing in us. When we pray those things in faith, God moves and it's a beautiful thing. But let's just acknowledge the reality that maybe you're sitting and going, but preacher, I've prayed it in faith for years and he ain't done it. I prayed for someone to be healed and they weren't healed. And I had faith. I believed he could do it. This is where we have to step back and say, God healed them in the way that he chose to heal them by taking them home. So we have to understand we have faith. Yes, we believe God can do these great things. But also remember the point of what Jesus came to do in these works and these words was to declare that he was Messiah. And really what these people in his hometown missed out on, not only seeing this fullness of what he could do, which by the way, he went and did other places, so there's still evidence of it. But they rejected him as Messiah, and by rejecting his works, they missed the opportunity to receive Christ. They chose to deny him and therefore chose to to deny him as Savior, not having their sins forgiven. But I love that, that Mark put that in there for us. That he couldn't do what he was wanting to do or what he was going to do. The miracles that he has done in other places in Scripture. But he healed a few. He healed a few. That encourages me because I know when I'm struggling in my faith, he gives me those sample size movings. Strengthens our faith. Shows us that he's still working even when we don't see it. Even when the world turns their back on him, he continues to work. And he's healing a few. Not only did they offense of him, they were offended at him, rejected him. They marveled, or rather he marveled, sorry, at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. He limited 
what he was going to do or desiring to show them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. So he marvels at their unbelief. And then he says, okay, you're offended at me. You reject me. I'm going to just leave. And he actually left and went to the surrounding villages teaching and doing what God led him to do, the Father. Scripture records two moments when Jesus is said to have marveled. Here in this instance, he marvels at their lack of faith. And what group is this in Nazareth? This is a group of Jews. So he marvels at the lack of faith of the Jews. And then in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 9, he marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion, a Gentile. He marvels at the lack of faith among the Jews. And then he marvels at the faith displayed by a Gentile. And I believe those two things are huge to the move that God is going to do in redemptive history. The word itself means to wonder at as the thing is beheld. He beheld their lack of faith and wondered at it. Jesus, in seeing their response to his teaching, was amazed at their lack of faith. This does not mean that Jesus was unaware of their lack of faith, of course. He dealt with unbelief constantly. He was in awe of the depth of their hostility towards himself in their unbelief. This is what we all have toward Christ in our natural state until the Spirit works and we respond in faith. So this morning, I want to pose a simple question. You don't need to answer it loud, but just to think through this. Are you offended at Christ's teaching? Are you rejecting him as Savior and Lord because he does not fit into your understanding? The Spirit of God is calling you to repentance, grace, and forgiveness. Will you respond in faith and receive him? Not because he fits the mold of what you think, but because you realize the need you have for a Savior because you know your sin. And his grace is calling and saying, would you receive me as Savior that I may forgive you and might lead you all the way to heaven? Another question we can ask is, are we placing our faith and trust in Christ as a follower of Christ? Are we truly placing our faith and trust in him? If so, as a follower of Christ, are you offended or embarrassed by Christ? Are there times in your lives where you're offended and embarrassed to be a follower of Christ? May you pray for strength and boldness to overcome that and to realize that we're not here to please man, we're here to please God. Let's believe that God can move in ways that will bring glory to his name, not in the ways we always understand. And I believe he will always work in agreement with his will and his word. But let's pray that we will believe as a church that God can do great things. It's not going to always be what we think and what we want, but I pray that we would always want what he wants for us and for his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for this passage that you've laid before us. Father, I pray that as only you can, that you would work by the moving of your spirit. Help us to believe, Lord, that you are a, a powerful God, a miracle-working God. But Lord, even as we say that, we want to stop and pause and know that everything is to be done according to your will. And so, Lord, there's times that we're going to pray in faith, asking for a healing of a loved one, asking for leading or maybe even provision in some area. And, Lord, you may answer that with a, a yes. 
and the person is healed this side of heaven or you provide in some way that we are just left in awe of you. Lord, sometimes your answer is not right now. Sometimes it's not the timing that would please you and glorify you. And so you, you wait until that timing is right. And sometimes, Lord, because we don't understand all things as you do, the answer is no. So, Father, when you say no, or when it's not right now, I pray that our faith would not be shaken. Because our faith is not in you always saying yes. Our faith is in you because you are who you say you are. Our good and loving and gracious Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, that we would submit ourselves to you. Thank you for even in our moments of unbelief, you still work. I find that amazing, Lord, that even when they didn't believe, you still worked. You just, you just couldn't help but heal and glorify the Father. And Father, I pray that when we struggle in our faith, that we would run to you, that we would come to the throne of grace and receive mercy at the proper time. And so, Father, help us with our unbelief. We, we pray that you would strengthen us. Father, help us to know that you are a great God who can do great things for your glory alone. Father, move now, we ask, that maybe there's someone here, Lord, that doesn't know you as Savior. I pray that they would choose to submit to you, asking for you to forgive them of their sins, believing you died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again, that they might have eternal life, being spared the eternity in a place called hell, which is the natural payment for our sins. I pray that you would show us your great love. Thank you, Father, for your grace, that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that you loved us. And so, Father, I pray for the believer here today that's maybe offended at you, embarrassed by you in our culture today, which is so antagonistic to the things of Christ. Give us strength to stand, not to flee, but to, to stand strong where you've called us, strengthened by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.